This is Jake. And you're listening to a normal summer podcast. Now go ahead and open in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Continuing on through the Gospel of John this morning, and we are at a, uh, a tense moment in Jesus' life when he is on trial. And so I don't know what your experience with the criminal legal system is. Um, I'm sure there's varying degrees just with our different experiences. But here's, here's my first experience. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I was driving. I had a, my, my mom was gracious to me. Happy Mother's Day, my mom, who's uh, in Abilene this morning. But uh, she, when I turned 16, essentially let me drive her Suburban. And, uh, and that was my car. And she was carless. She was the best ever. And, uh, but I was driving the Suburban, and a taillight was out, and so I had a cop pull me over, and uh, of course, I'm 16. I'm a, I'm a very new driver. Like, I'm not like late 16. I'm early 16. Got my license. Cop pulls me over. First time ever to be pulled over by a cop, and I am like panicked, okay? I don't know what's going to I'm just like, I, you know, heart, heart's racing. I don't know why I got pulled over. Police officer shows up, and I've, I, uh, he asks for my license and the insurance verification, and I'm, like, panicked. My wallet, you know, I'm sure it was one of those Velcro ones at the time. I mean, that thing is, like, missing. I have no clue where that wallet is in this entire Suburban. The insurance information, I open the glove box, and there's 4,000 pages of stuff in the glove box. I don't know where the – and so I'm fumbling through everything trying to get this information for this cop, and, uh, and finally, I find some farmers or something, uh, uh, information, I'm like, is that it? <laughs> and he's like, is this a sign of a responsible driver? I'm like, I've been so angry about his, ever since then, seemed like talking to me like that, right? Anyway, so this was 17 years ago, okay? I'm, so like, I, it was, I was pretty angry, and uh, I, I'm still angry about that comment, but uh, I couldn't find my license. My wallet was missing in action. I have no clue where that thing went. So the cop goes back, and he's like, well, listen, I pulled you over because you had a taillight out. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to go back. And uh, he writes me a ticket for my taillight being out, and he marked I didn't have a license. By the time he gets back to my car, I found my wallet, okay? And so I'm like, oh, here's my license. I found it. It was, it was missing. I was panicked. Here it is. And so he just crosses that out of the ticket, hands me a ticket because my taillight was out. Of course, no one's going to know your taillight's out unless a cop pulls you over and lets you know the taillight's out. Like, who's going to put a rock in their brake light to go back and check? No, no one's going to check. Anyways, so he writes me a ticket for this. And so I'm 16, so my dad goes with me. He, he and I get in the car, a different car. And, uh, well, first he goes to O'Reilly, gets a different fuse, fixes the taillight, takes the old fuse out, puts it in his pocket, and then we head down to downtown, the city courthouse, in order to get the ticket dismissed uh, for the taillight being out. Now, we're in the court there, and the prosecutor, the, someone who works for the DA office, some graceless lawyer, is there, and he's like, okay, well, did you fix the taillight? And my dad's like, yes, here's the fuse. And that lawyer looks at us and is like, nope, I need better evidence that you fixed the taillight than that. We're like, are you kidding me? And the judge laughs. So he makes us drive all the way back home to take a picture of the, the working taillight with something with today's date on it in the picture. 
Now, that's my ex first experience with the criminal legal system, okay? Now, I imagine we've all had varying degrees, like I said at the beginning. We've all had different degrees of, of experience with the criminal legal system. That was my first one. Now, why do I tell you this? Because in our experience, sometimes just through our fault or through other people's faults, we experience having to go before a judge or we have a sibling or a, or a, or a child or a parent or someone who has to go before a judge. And we see people in that context and it makes sense that people have to go through that sometimes. But we've come to a point in the Gospel of John in which we see Jesus in that very setting. And, it's, and for whatever reason, it is a shocking thing to me to, to picture Jesus as being in that context. Did you know, like, I don't know if you thought about it or not, like, you probably know the story, or many of us know the story, but if you really lay it out in contemporary legal terms, Jesus had an arrest warrant out. And then he had, he had a party come, arrest him, put him in handcuffs, take him to jail, and, uh, and then he went, and he had charges brought against him. He was brought before a judge, was put on trial, had a prosecuting attorney. He had a conviction and a sentence. And if you think about Jesus Christ being someone in that legal setting and having this entire experience, like, I don't know why, but for me, it was still shocking even now thinking about him being in that setting. But, but that's where we're at in this gospel. And I just, I don't know, I find it interesting. And so that's where we're at. Jesus is arrested at this point, where we're at in John chapter 18. And so the timeline leading up to this point is he had one of his good buddies, one of his disciples betray him, Judas. Betrayed him in the Garden of Gethsemane as there was an arrest warrant out. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll help you capture that criminal. And so he leads this Roman, these Roman guards up to this garden where Jesus is to betray him so that way they could arrest him and take him into jail or take him into custody. And, uh, and so Jesus is handcuffed, taken into custody, and he first is taken to a dude named Annas. And Annas is the Jewish high priest's father-in-law. And so he's questioned by Annas, and then after Annas questions him, they take him over to Caiaphas, who's the actual Jewish high priest. And then after Caiaphas questions Jesus, then they take him over to this Roman governor named Pilate. And so that's where we're at in John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. And so this trial setting, or this trial uh, scene, introduces an, a theme about Jesus that's new to us in a sense in this gospel. You see it in Mark all over the place, but it's new to us in this gospel. And the, and the, and the theme is this, Jesus as King. Jesus as King. That's, that's what we see as we're getting into this trial. And we'll see like why, why this theme pops up here in just a second. But here's the, here's the outline for today. Here's what I want you to see. We're going to see first the claim of the King. We're going to see the clarification of of the kingdom and the call from the king. The claim of the king, the clarification of the kingdom, and the call from the king. So let's look at the text together, and then we'll get going into it. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would have been defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, "'What charge do you bring against this man?' And they answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your own law. 
It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews, the Jews declared. And they said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You're a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? said Pilate. After he'd said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release, you, uh, release to you to the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. And now Barabbas was a revolutionary. And so let's pray, and then we'll get into this. So Father, we come before you, and we thank you for your word. And pray that you would help us to understand what it is that Jesus was saying here so that we can live in light of it and follow him as our king. And so we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to hear. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So up first, we got the claim of the king. So Jesus is brought before this guy named Pilate. He's the Roman governor at this time uh, over this whole Jerusalem, Judea area. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of political, there's a lot of tension between the Romans and the Jews, between Pilate and the Jewish authorities. And, uh, and so it's kind of interesting to look at this uh, as the background for what's happening during this trial scene. So Pilate was kind of a ruthless guy towards the Jews. He didn't feel a lot of warm feelings toward the Jewish authorities, uh, nor did they towards him. Uh, but at this point in his career, he wasn't incredibly old, but at this point in his career, he could not ignore their concerns because of some things that have happened in the past uh, with him. Because if he has problems with the Jews, Herod, his buddy down, down uh, away from him, tells on him to Caesar, and it gets him a lot of trouble. So Caesar at this time, the Roman uh, emperor, does not want to intentionally stir up problems with the Jewish authorities. He doesn't want the Jews mad because it only creates problems for him to have to deal with. And he's got other things in the, in the empire he's got to worry about. And so intentionally making a certain group of people under his authority mad is not his number one priority. Now, Pilate wants to be seen as a good governor to Caesar because he wants to continually climb the ladder. Also, he wants to be seen as a good governor to Caesar because the man who put Pilate in place has been executed. And so Pilate needs to be seen as doing a really, really good job. Now, also, recently, Pilate also tried to honor Caesar by putting some shields up with Caesar's name on a palace in Jerusalem. Well, that made the Jews really, really mad. And so they started to create, it started to create a rift in the city. And, uh, and so someone told Caesar on Pilate that this was happening, that Pilate was trying to be a go-getter and trying to make Caesar, you know, like, hey, Caesar, look, I'm a big fan of yours. And, uh, and since this is creating problems in the city, Caesar sent a letter back reprimanding Pilate for trying to do this dumb stunt and made him take the, the shields down. And so, uh, so Pilate is caught here in trying to, one, claim his authority over the Jews— 
and claim his position and to be seen as a really good governor, but he also has to be really sensitive to what the Jewish people desire, because if there's problems with the Jews and it gives back to Caesar, then Pilate is going to lose his job. And so that's what's happening inside of Pilate at this time. So there's a give and take here uh, for him. Now, as this trial begins, what happens is they lead Jesus from Caiaphas' house, these are the Jewish high priest, over to Pilate's headquarters. But no one wants to go inside because Pilate is not a Jew. And so if they go into his place, into his house, that makes them unclean, and this is the Passover time. And so if they go and get unclean at this point, they can't celebrate the Passover the next day. And so Pilate, annoyingly, has to come out to them to do his trial outside of his own house or outside of his headquarters. So he comes out to these Jews and begins to hear, them, hear their stuff. Now, here's, look what he says, verse 29. Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? Now, if you and I just read this, we might not catch the Jewish-Roman interplay that's happening in this. Here's what's going on. Pilate has to know the charges already. He has to know exactly why Jesus is here and why the Jewish authorities have brought him. Why? Because a Roman guard troop, like a Roman or a bunch of Roman guards, were the ones who went to arrest Jesus. The Jews don't have the authority to command the Roman guards to go and arrest Jesus. Pilate does. And so Pilate had to authorize those Roman guards going to get Jesus by understanding what the charges were against Jesus. But now these Jewish authorities are bringing Jesus back to Pilate for the trial, and he's like, all right, if you want anything happen to this guy, you've got to convince me. Starting over from scratch, what are the charges against this man? And I I don't know, I think this is kind of interesting here, because what Pilate is doing, he's trying to flex his authority over these Jewish guys. He wants them to understand he's the man in charge, and if you want anything done, you need me to do it. So what's the charge against this guy? (laughs) And, And he's establishing a new trial. And so check this out. In this, there's not actually a unified mood or mob against Jesus. Like, they're not a unified group of everyone's walking into this setting saying, Let's crucify this guy. We hate him. You have a bunch of different groups of people all trying to get something out of this situation that they desire to happen, right? So you have these Jewish authorities who are trying to get rid of Jesus, trying to get him killed. You have the Romans who are trying to exert authority over the Jewish people in this moment, trying to just claim superiority. And so you've got these multiple competing ideas at play within this process. And so when we get to it, he's like, all right, what's the problem? What's, what's the problem? What's going on here? And the Jews, they're kind of flabbergasted. They're like, what, what do you mean what's the allegation? We, we've already gone through this. You've, you, you authorized the guards going. Look what happens. Look what they say in verse 30. If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Just go ahead and convict him. They don't even say what the allegations are. They're like, you know what's happening here. Why are you making us do this? And uh, so to further insult them, Pilate turns and he's like, you know what? Take him and judge him according to your own law. Don't even bother me with this. And they're like, well, we, we can't. We can't. We can't do that because we want to kill him 
and we don't have the authority to kill him. You have the authority to kill him. He's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm the one who has authority here, right? Okay, guys, well, then I guess we can proceed. It's, it's, I don't know. It's just like just step on their face as many times as you can before we begin this whole process. That's what Pilate's doing here. Now, what's the actual allegation? Look at verse 33. Well, Pilate walks back into Jesus, and he summons him, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is the allegation that's actually set against Jesus, is that he has claimed to be a king. Before we get there, I want you to read one thing in verse 31. I mean, 32. They said they wanted to put Jesus to death, and John wants to make a note before we get going into this trial, just so that everyone's aware that Jesus is under no authority that God hasn't set up. Look what this says. They said this too so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what death he was going to die. So essentially John is saying, hey, just heads up before we begin this. There's allegations against Jesus, but I don't want you to forget that God's the one in control of this entire situation. Jesus has submitted himself to this moment, and uh, these other actors aren't doing this to him. He's allowing it to happen. So just as you're, just so you know, that's what John's saying. Okay, now here's the allegation. Jesus has claimed to be a king. Now, for the Jews, they are concerned with two things. They're concerned with two things about this. The first thing is this. Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah. This is the first thing. is theological. And this is their main problem. He's claimed to be the Messiah. And for them, they're looking at this guy saying, you're from Nazareth. You're a nobody. There's no way you're the Messiah. We think you're crazy. We think you're blasphemous. You need to die. And so they're trying to get rid of their Jesus problem because he's amassing a bunch of Jewish followers, and they're seeing this. They're like, what is happening here? We've got to honor God. We've got to kill this man. So the first problem is theological. The second one is political. Because the second thing that's happening is Jesus is getting too big of a following. And the Jewish authorities are looking at this thinking, the Romans are not going to like this. The Romans are not going to like the fact that we are allowing this false prophet to walk around and gather all these, all these followers, and it's going to be bad. And they say this, the Romans are going to come in, and they're going to take our place and our nation away from us. And so their second problem is political. They don't want problems with Rome. And so in order to deal with both of these issues, they're like, the best solution is to kill this man. Get rid of this Jesus guy, and we don't have a problem with God, and we don't have a problem with Rome anymore. That's what they're worried about. That's what's happening. And so they put this plan into motion in order to bring a death sentence against Jesus to get rid of this guy. And so ironically, if you think about it, what the Jews are pursuing here is self-preservation. They're trying to preserve themselves and their lives by killing Jesus. And Caiaphas says this in John chapter 11. Uh, if you remember that, when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was that, that chapter. Caiaphas, the high priest, said this. You don't know, all, he's talking to all of his friends. You don't know anything at all. You're not considering that it's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the entire nation perish. And John, he's picked up on that. He's like, yes, that's exactly right. We'll get on that later. <laughs> But Caiaphas is talking about this idea of we're trying to preserve ourselves by killing this guy. The problem is they can't bring that death penalty on their own. So they need the Romans to do it. They don't have the authority to kill a guy. 
But they also know that the Romans don't care about their law. The Romans don't care about their theological problem. They don't care if one guy claims to be Jesus or one guy claims to be a snake god. Doesn't matter to them. And so, and so in order to get a Roman court to convict this guy that is a false prophet in their eyes, then they have to put this allegation in place in ways that would be meaningful to the Roman authorities. And so Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but for them to make the allegation in a Roman court, they're like, he's not the Messiah, he's claiming to be a king, which is true. Because to be the Messiah in the Old Testament meant to be the king, to come in the line of David. And so they're not lying here. He did claim this, but that's what they're putting forth in this Roman court as the allegation against them. Why? Because a claim to be a political figure, a king no less, with many people following him, that would get Rome's attention. That would be a problem or a threat to Rome. And so that's what they put forward toward this Roman authority. They're like, this guy's claiming to be a king. He's got a bunch of followers. You need to get rid of him because he's a threat to you. And so next, I want you to see the clarification of the kingdom. The clarification of the kingdom. Look at verse 33. So Pilate went back in, summoned Jesus, and said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own, or has someone else told you about me? Now, I love this question because Jesus isn't answering his question to begin with, right? He's like, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking, he's addressing the allegation. And Jesus is like, are you, are you addressing an allegation here or are you really curious? Like, are you interested in me? Do you kind of want to follow me or do you not want to follow me? And then all of a sudden Pilate's like, bro, I'm not a Jew. I'm not interested in this. Okay, never mind. You know, but I love this question because Jesus is piping in, like looking in this moment, like he's on trial, heading to his death, but he's still assessing, is this Jew, I mean, is this Roman judge interested in following me? Like, I, don't, I love that for a, just for a second. He's still on mission in this moment, uh, but Pilate doesn't care. Nope. All right. Well, uh, Pilate's like, no, dude, your people handed you over to me. They made the allegation against you to me. What did you do? There's a presumption of guilt here. And Jesus essentially ignores this question. Uh, and he goes on to clarify the first one. Look what Jesus says. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So now, Jesus does this because sometimes when two people say, a similar, uh, say a word, they can mean two different things, right? And so here, like, when you say the word king, most of the time you conjure up an idea in your head of a political ruler, right? When you say a king, you think of a guy wearing, like, like a, a, like a nice robe, like, a, you know, if you think of, like, Hamilton, like the king on Hamilton, right? I mean, he's got the, the, the fur-lined coat, and he's got the big crown on his head, and that kind of thing. Or most recently, Prince, or I guess Prince Charles, King Charles was just had his coronation. He just became the king of England. And so they had that whole king of England thing where he had the crown put on his head. Camilla, his wife, had the crown put on her head. He was given the scepter. He rode in the golden chariot. And, uh, and so he had his whole coronation as the new king of England, and he's the one who governs the whole realm of the United Kingdom. Not us, though. 
but uh, other people, right? As Americans, like, it's not our king. Anyways, but he had this whole coronation thing of, like, that's what you envision when you think of a king, someone who has this royal authority over land, over people. They have ability to make laws. They levy taxes. They raise armies. That's the kind of king you think about when you say the word king. And Jesus is like, hey, listen, I want you to think of something completely different when you're talking about me. Because when you say king and I say king, we're talking about two different things. And so Jesus is like, listen, my kingdom is completely other. It is not of this world. It's otherworldly. See, look at, listen to verse 36 again. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Now, there's a question here. What kind of king, if he's a king, what kind of king would submit himself to this kind of like trial, to this setting? What kind of king would submit himself willingly to a trial that he knows is going to head to his death? What kind of king would do that? And Jesus' answer here is one who is of a completely different class altogether. That's where he's getting at. And so, what's the nature of his kingdom? Like, if he's a king who's willing to submit himself to a trial, willing to submit himself to death, and he's a completely different class altogether, then what does it mean that he's a king? What's the nature of his kingdom? Well, look at verse 37. Pilate says, you're a king then. And, the, and he says, you say I'm a king. He's like, king is your word, not mine. But in any case, here's what it means. I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so Jesus is clarifying what he means by his king, his kingdom. This is the nature of his kingdom. So if you remember back, John chapter 8, uh, we talked about, uh, it, was a, it was a festival where Jesus was at, and he talked about, uh, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, if you recall that from John chapter 8 when we were going through there. And Jesus in that, he was, what he was teaching was true disciples of Jesus move into his teaching just like you would move into a new house. That's what he was talking about, his teaching. Like, and so, like, you live in the Word if you are truly one of Jesus' disciples. And so now here, Jesus is taking that exact same teaching concept, that exact same principle that true disciples move into Jesus' teaching and applying it to the context of a king and a kingdom. And so what he's saying here is that he is the king who reveals truth. And true disciples, true subjects of the king are those that submit themselves to his teaching or to his word. And so therefore, anyone who submits themselves to the word of God are subjects within the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is the king that rules in the hearts and in the lives of those who submit to his word. He is the one who reveals truth about God. That's what he's meaning here. 
And so he's saying, look, when you talk about king, when I talk about king, we're talking about two completely different things because you're talking about something like the Roman Empire. I'm talking about a spiritual kingdom where I'm not trying to grab land. I'm trying to grab your heart. That's what he's getting at in this. It's the opposite of a dictator, right? <laughs> where true subjects, those who are in, are in because they love the king, right? That's, where, that's how it works. And so here's the question. What is the truth then? If Jesus says, I was born for this and I came to testify to the truth, well, then what is the truth? Well, what we learned about in John chapter 8 was this, is that when you submit yourself to the word of the king, then that will enable you to see yourself and your world rightly. It's the lens through which you can understand yourself and your world rightly. Why? Because you'll begin to understand exactly why you were created. You'll understand what you were meant to be. You'll understand who God is, what God is like, what God desires from us, what's wrong with our world. When you submit yourself to the word of Christ, then you'll be able to understand yourself and your world rightly. This happens because Jesus, the one whose teaching we submit to, is the one who reveals God in its fullness. That's what he's saying here. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so there's a question on this, though, sometimes when you hear that. You're like, it's a spiritual kingdom. What kind of kingdom is that? Like, if you really think about it, like, what kind of kingdom is that? Like, like it's a spiritual kingdom. Like, is that a kingdom that has any power behind it? If you're comparing it, like, think of, like, major kingdoms, the Roman Empire or Genghis Khan's empire or all these other empires. You're like, those seem powerful. How is a spiritual kingdom powerful in any sense? But if you stop and think about it, it's far more powerful, an ever-expanding, a never-ending kingdom. Because just stop and think for a second. Think of the spread of the kingdom of Christ. Billions of people for the past 2,000 years have entered into the kingdom. Billions of people. Over the past 2,000 years, every person who gives their life to follow Jesus, enters into his kingdom and expands. That's the parable of the mustard seed, right? Jesus said the kingdom is like the mustard seed. It's the smallest of the seeds, but then once it plants and it grows, it sprouts into one of the largest bushes in the garden, right? He's saying the beginning were the, were the disciples. That was the mustard seed, and they spread the word of Christ. And what does it do? It flowers into one of the bar- largest plants in the garden. And now we can see the spread of the kingdom of God, right? In that there are all of us here today in order to hear the word of God. That's why we're here. It's because we're part of the kingdom of God. We're submitted to the word of God. We want to hear his word. You're in the kingdom if you're submitted to the word, if you follow Jesus with your life. You're part of the kingdom. Think of the spread. Think also of the power of the kingdom of God, of a spiritual kingdom over one that just cares about land. Because what army can kill belief? What army can take belief away or can remove it? Like what, what army can squash the spread of the truth of Christ? I want to read something to you. You might think of like, well, what about oppressive governments, places where the government is the God, right? Think of like North Korea or something like that. Let me read something to you. When Christians in North Korea meet to pray, they know it comes at an enormous risk. Did you know there's Christians in North Korea? 
Any gathering must be done in total secrecy because if it's discovered that they're Christians, they'll be killed or face indefinite periods of appalling labor camps. Um, and so recently, Open Doors contacts heard from a reliable source the tragic news that several dozen North Korean believers in an underground church have been discovered and have been executed. They paid the ultimate cost for following Jesus or knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. This persecution is part of a major sweep against underground Christians in an area of North Korea that we can't identify because it would be unsafe to do so. These secret believers were gathered for a meeting, and once they began worshiping, security guards broke in and arrested everybody. Not only were they all executed, it's believed that over 100 members of their families were rounded up and sent to political camps. It's a common fear tactic in North Korea to extend a punishment, not just to the supposed culprit, but also to their loved ones. Uh, one source uh, believed that the time of their, their, uh, their meeting was deliberately leaked to authorities. In North Korea, we're worshiping any god that is not Kim Jong-un is strictly forbidden. Christianity is considered a, a threat to the government and to the Kim family. Um, and so it's been intensified recently. Now, despite everything, our, this, this, is, this is legit. This is a legit letter. Despite everything, our courageous church family in North Korea continued to proclaim the eternal victory of the Lord Almighty. This is an excerpt from a secret letter smuggled out of the country by an underground church leader. Just like the scripture, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. How worthy of thanks it is that God knows when we walk in the shadow of death and tribulation, that when we fall into fear, anxiety, worthy, uh, worry, and despair, he pours out his peace and joy so that we can keep our body, hearts, and spirits filled with peace and joy from the kingdom of God. That's a legit letter from Christians inside North Korea who've just had that happen in their underground church. Now, when you're thinking about power in a kingdom, that's power. That's power. What army can come in and take belief away? When you have the oppressive arm of the entire government of North Korea coming in to kill you and your church, and you're able to send a letter out that says, Jesus says, what does Jesus say? He says, Jesus says, my peace I leave, my peace I give to you, that is a powerful kingdom. I mean, think of the unending nature of it, right? Because what can cause an idea to cease? You can die. The nation can end, right? See the Roman Empire. Nations can end. One day the U.S. may no longer exist anymore. But what about belief? What about faith? That continues. Just as faith existed in the Roman Empire, and it existed beyond the Roman Empire, right? It's the unending nature of the kingdom of God. Now, here's the third thing, the last thing. I want you to hear the call from the king. Because look at verse 37. He said, you're a king then? You say that I'm a king. It's your word, not mine. But I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Hear that call. Everyone who is of the truth listens to the voice 
of Jesus, listens to the word of Jesus, submits to the word of Jesus. And look what Pilate says. What is truth? Pilate's response, I'm out. The Jewish response, look what they do. After he said this, he went out to the Jews again. I find no grounds for charging this man. You've got a custom that I release a prisoner to you. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews to you? And what do the Jewish authorities say? Nope, we're out. We want Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the one who is guilty of the very crime we're accusing Jesus of. We want him instead of Jesus. So for the Jewish authorities, they're out. Jesus says this, everyone who is of the truth, who submits to the truth, is of the truth, right? They listen to his voice. And so Pilate was out, the Jewish authorities are out, but what about you? What about you? Are you submitted to the authority and to the word of the king? Are you a subject of the king? Does his word Does Scripture rule your heart? Does it govern your decisions? And listen, he's a good and gracious king. Remember his question to Pilate? What was his question? He's like, hey, are you asking this on your own? Do you care about this? Do you want more teaching real quick before we begin with the trial? Do you need to learn how to follow? There was room for the Roman judge that Jesus was set before. And if there was room for him, there was room for you. And so ultimately, Jesus endured this trial to go to the cross. And he knew that. He knew this was not going to end with an acquittal. He knew he was going to get convicted and sentenced to death. And that was his purpose, right? That was his purpose. He was the good king who came not just to gather subjects, but to die for them as well. Why? Because God is holy. That means he's perfect. Because he's perfect, Nothing corrupt could ever be with him. On the other hand, you and I have corrupted ourselves because we've sinned. And so because we've sinned, I'll give you an example. We've lied. I've lied. So have you. I've had anger problems. So have you. I've punched my brother. So have many of you. Not my brother, your brother. But because we've sinned, And God is holy. That means we must be separated from Him both now and into eternity. So that means now, spiritually, we're we're separated from Him, but also into eternity, we're going to be separated from His goodness forever in hell. But God doesn't want that to be the case for you. And so He sent His Son, Jesus, to endure this trial and to head to His death on the cross so that way His death would would be the payment for the penalty of your sin. And then he rose again from the dead. And so now if you believe in Jesus, if you say your death on the cross applies to the sin in my life, and now because you died on the cross, I gained forgiveness in my life, and I can be restored back to God, then you will be saved. And so Scripture says if you admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place and attains forgiveness for you, and confess him as the new king of your life, you will be saved. And so if that's you today, this is the perfect day to do it. On Mother's Day, it'll make your mom proud. And so now, 
Let's prepare our hearts to worship our great King.